Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we are discussing legacy income, a funding cornerstone for the sector made up of the charitable gifts and donations that people bequeath in the event of their death. Right. And for a number of years before the pandemic, legacy income was perhaps one of the strongest performers among traditional fundraising income streams. Um, So I did some analysis in 2019, which found out that fundraised income from everything except legacies at the top 10 fundraising charities had actually fallen over the past few years. But legacy income was so strong that it was actually masking this. And so overall, the income was going up. And one of the reasons this was happening is because of the types of legacies that tend to get left to charities. It's not very common for people just to go, I am leaving £5,000 to charity or a set amount to charity. Right, absolutely. So I was reading an article about this yesterday that said the average legacy gift is, quote, between £3,000 and £30,000. So, you know, that's a pretty wide margin of error. Right, right. I think if someone said, on average, you're going to get paid between three and 30 grand a year for this job, <laughs> yeah. you, might, you might have some questions. Um, so, yeah. So, so what happens is when people are leaving money to charities, what they do most often is say, I leave £30,000 to each of my children, £5,000 to my niece and whatever is left over can go to charity. Or they say, you know, I'm going to give 10% to this daughter, 10% to this daughter, 5% to charity, that sort of thing. It tends to be a proportion, not a kind of fixed amount. Obviously, most people there are leaving 65 grand. I, don't, I think I made that those figures up. I'm sure they're not representative, but for this illustration, <laughs> this is a wealthy person who's got a lot of lot of money to give away. A lot of disposable income. Right. So often it's not actually about that disposable income. It's, it's because people's estates include property. So if the charities or indeed the people who are the beneficiaries of the will you know, want to get the money they've been left, they have to wait until the house is sold. And obviously, we all know property prices have been creeping up and up and up. So the value of those bequests to charity have been going up as well, even if people are still leaving the same kind of rough proportion. You know, even if people say, I'm, I'm leaving 1% of my estate, that value is still going to go up if, if the house value goes up. Absolutely. And so what this means is that legacies can then stretch into the hundreds of thousands or even into the millions of pounds. One of the most extraordinary cases of a major legacy gift occurred in 2018 when businessman Richard Cousins and his family died in a seaplane crash. Um, Cousins had planned to leave the majority of his wealth to his two sons in the form of a trust. But tragically, they also died in the crash. And there was a clause in Cousins's will that said that in the event that he and his sons all died together... Oxfam should become the main beneficiary of his estate. The charity received a legacy gift of £41 million. Now, that's a pretty extreme example, but the fact remains that they can be a major earner for charities. Right, and we probably should say at this point, like, yeah, this is a difficult area to talk about, actually. You You know, what we are dealing with is people dying and leaving their money to charity. And as in the cousin's case, like it, it's not always a kind of, you know, they get to the end of their life and they, they wish to do good. But at the same time, it is a major owner for charities. And it is often a way, you know, for people giving the money to charity, leaving the money to charity, it can be quite a kind of a way of feeling that they will do some good in the world after they are gone, that they are leaving a better world for those that they love and care about. Um, so yeah, it often can be quite a positive thing. Um, and it's very interesting when you go to legacy fundraising conferences that you know, they do have sort of workshops on how to have really difficult conversations with people and and how to encourage people to sort of talk about death, but you know, in a positive way and to think about 
a legacy and what a legacy means. So yeah, so there are there is there is a certain there are often sad stories involved with these legacy stories, but you know also this incredible positivity of the work that charities are able to do as a result that that people want to see happen in their name and with their money. I do think ultimately it is quite a positive thing that it is such a big part of you know sector income. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've also we've now talked about legacy so much that I, I definitely have parts of Hamilton happening in my head. Um, so yes, this this is you know been a, a major run for charities in recent years, and then we get to the pandemic. Yes, indeed. So of course we all know that fundraising income declined during the pandemic, and legacy income it appears was no different. It fell by eleven percent in twenty twenty, according to a market forecast by the charity legacy consortium Legacy Foresight, uh, and that research was published in March. However, the same forecast also pointed out that there may be an increase in bequests for the very obvious and sad reason that we have seen more deaths than usual over the past year. So preliminary data suggests that there were 690,000 deaths in the UK in 2020, and that's the highest level recorded since the flu pandemic and the conclusion of the First World War in 1918. And as a result of the lockdowns, there have also been delays in processing estate administrations. This means there's been a holdup in charities actually getting any money that has been left to them. Legacy Foresight thinks this could lead to bequests hitting record levels in 2021, with estimates suggesting a rise of about 34%. But it is worth pointing out that the estate administration or probate system was already incredibly congested and clogged up in 2019. So that rise does depend on having that backlog from the past three years getting cleared at a fairly decent pace. Right. And we also had that other report from Charity Benchmarks, which was produced by the fundraising companies Freestyle Marketing and Open in February. Now, that found that legacy income was at a, quote, near universal concern at the 15 major fundraising charities it surveyed. The reason for this concern, according to the report, was about this issue of how slow that probate service has been, even though it did acknowledge that legacies were likely to grow. Now, of course, we should point out that the report acknowledges that it only looked at a very small group of charities. So that sample size of 15 is not really too much to go on. Right. And you know, I have to say, legacies just seem to be one of the most analysed areas of charity income. There are so many different services offering these kind of forecasts, these predictions and these analysis. And I'm, I'm really not sure if that's because there's so much money at stake or just because it's, it's easier to quantify and to monitor. Um, so, yeah, there's just there are so many facts and stats drifting around where it comes to legacies and they kind of they get updated sort of almost quarterly and and so we, we must be due for a new one soon but to help us shift through all the facts and stats and to find out what's actually going on with legacies we spoke to matthew lagden chief executive of the institute of legacy management So, uh, Matthew, thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Brilliant. So, so yeah, obviously we know that uh, fundraising as a whole has been hugely affected by the pandemic. All those opportunities for donor recruitment disappeared. But for legacies in particular, how was legacy donor recruitment affected by the pandemic? Was it sheltered or was it kind of as affected as, as the rest of the sector? The truth is there is, there is no such thing as uh, legacy donor recruitment in the sense that only very committed organisational supporters. If you set aside perhaps the top 10 brand name charities uh, who operate in a very different environment and who have very deep pools of support and will receive a lot of legacies from people who haven't had any visible interaction with them, 
Now, that doesn't mean they haven't had any interactions. So, for instance, uh, if you take, uh, say, Cancer Research UK, simply because it's the biggest, sort of best-known charity in the UK, now, a lot of the people who leave them a legacy will not have interacted with them in a visible way, i.e. have, you know, directly donated, but will absolutely have interacted with them by proxy, will have taken part in an event, will have bought something in shops, will have in some sense supported them in their lifetime. But if you if you set aside the sort of the top 10 charities, it is really, it's a process of converting existing warm supporters to become legators. Mm. It is very unlikely for most charities, 99% of charities in the UK will not be able to recruit someone directly to become a legator from cold. Yeah, so so the first time you meet them go, have you thought about leaving us some money in your will? That's unlikely to happen. That is unlikely to happen. And and I you know, don't wish to be the prophet of doom. But if you're doing <laughs> that, that isn't going to work for you. And you, you need to think again, genuinely. So if you look at it in that context, obviously, most charities were not able to recruit new supporters, although some did some very innovative stuff. Uh, and, you know, it's you can't talk about last year as a whole, because really, there are at least two or three different phases of last year in terms of what was and wasn't possible. And one of the truly remarkable things is how rapidly the sector was able to adapt last year and actually i think it showed the last year showed the sector at its very best in the sense that you have a period sort of march april may where everybody thought nothing can happen and this is going to be terrible and by june july august a lot of charities were working out what they could do and starting to implement as sort of you know and and undertaking a, a sort of a switch to a lot more digital fundraising and so we'll sort of come to this but i think there was an incredible amount of innovation last year a lot of which will just become permanent features but actually what the falling away of other kinds of fundraising did was that it opened space for a real focus for a lot of charities on converting their existing supporters into legators And so actually, I think it will have been in the long run, I think it's going to have been a remarkably positive event for legacy fundraising. Okay, so that's interesting. So in the future, we may be seeing that shift. But what impact has the pandemic had on sort of legacies in the shorter term, do you think? Well, I mean, it it wasn't good, (laughs) is is the short term. But equally, it wasn't as terrible as everybody thought. Hmm. So... In March, there were predictions that legacy income would be down by perhaps 25, 30. I saw one prediction that legacy income would be down by about 40%. Now, some charities I know have ended the year ahead of their target. And most charities are down by perhaps 5 to 10%, with a few slightly more than that, which obviously isn't brilliant. But in the context of what's happened to a lot of other income streams isn't bad and is a lot better than we all thought it might be. What the pandemic has done, and I think obviously this has happened in a whole host of kind of sectors, is it has accelerated trends that were always already underway. So I've been involved in legacy fundraising for unbelievably 22 years now. And when I started, legacies were an absolute backwater and nobody really even wanted to talk about it and certainly nobody was terribly interested and over the last sort of five years really legacies have become more and more central to most charities planning 
And the last year or so, I think, has just cemented that. So a lot of charities now have made legacies. They're one of their central income streams and in terms of how they view it and the priority they give it. And I think in terms of the level of understanding that senior stakeholders have of it as an income stream. So when I sort of started out, and really for the first sort of decade in which I was involved in legacies, most senior stakeholders didn't really understand anything to do with it, didn't really want to understand anything to do with legacies because of the associations with sort of death and and all of that that we know they really and and it was all viewed as being a bit of a dark art (laughs) and not something you really wanted to discuss at board level even if you know and I worked at charities where legacies were 50% of net income 25% of gross income and yet still the overall view of the trustees was that that was lovely but certainly not something you wanted to to sort of investigate or talk about very strongly or, you know, give any kind of priority to. I suppose there's a danger of being seen as being a bit mercenary, right? Like, that, that you know, you're waiting for your donors to die. Yeah, there was a general sense that if you put a lot of focus on legacy income, you valued people more when they were dead than when they were alive, which didn't sit very well. And you were hoping that people would die. And there's a general connotation. None of us like to talk about kind of death or or any of those things you know so there was a whole host of stuff and that has fundamentally changed and that change has been driven by really big charities coming to understand that a it's a perfectly uh, perfectly rational and legitimate form of giving that your supporters can view as being more or less the same as any other form of support and b that uh, the potential is enormous for it for sort of structural reasons to do with the UK economy and demographics that there is this tremendous potential the realization that if there is a lot of money to be made and if they're not on it other people will be okay so it's it, it's definitely an area of fundraising that's been on the rise for a number of number of years and so so with that in mind you know one of the things that is really crucial to legacy fundraising is property prices right that people will leave a portion of their estate and often that will include property and you know, so the more expensive the house is, to, you know, the, the higher the cost of selling the house, the the, um, the bigger the return for the charity. So, given that importance, the fact that we're heading into really uncertain financial times following the pandemic, what does do you think that means for the legacy landscape over the next few years? So, the sale of residential property um, accounts for about seventy percent of overall legacy income, and that is when you think about it, that makes sense because for most people the bulk of their estate. And and if you own a property when you are alive, that will form the most expensive asset you own by a very long way. And the bulk of most people's income, one way or another, if they own a property, if they're fortunate enough to own a property, the bulk of their income and their kind of asset base, as you would describe it, is tied up in property. And so that's just a feature of the UK economy. But because it's a feature of the UK economy, I think it's safe to say any UK government, and this is not a party political thing, any UK government will intervene in any way it possibly can to at least support the housing market. Now, we saw that in the midst of, you know, potentially the biggest financial crisis 
of, well, no, not potentially the biggest financial crisis. Last year was the biggest financial crisis of most of our lifetimes, depending on how you measure it, the biggest financial hit the UK economy has faced in hundreds of years, certainly since the Second World War, uh, all of that. What was one of the key actions the government went straight to? They brought stamp duty holiday. Why did they do that? Because housing wealth underpins a host of the economy. Uh, And so I think it's fair to say no government will knowingly stand back and allow the UK housing market to crash. That's that's just not going to happen. Uh, It doesn't mean it won't happen, but governments will take any and all action they possibly can to support the housing market. And let's be honest, people have been talking for my entire adult life about how overpriced UK property is and how at some point there had to be a correction to bring it back sort of in line with the the broader economy, and that has never really happened. What you actually want, it's not so much about house price increases, What, from a legacy's point of view, what you want is a fluid market with lots of buyers so that you can dispose of property fairly quickly. The sort of you know on any given on any given estate, what you really want is to sell that property within three to six months. What might be problematic is if houses are staying on the market for longer, but even that doesn't appear to be happening at the moment. Uh, and I mean, who knows why? Conventional economics would tell you that houses are grossly overpriced and therefore that prices should fall. And the housing market appears to be immune to any sense of conventional economics. And just on that kind of issue about things moving quickly, obviously, one of the other problems that we've had in the legacy market has been around this issue of kind of probate, the probate process and the state administration process having quite a backlog. Is that something you're concerned about at the moment? Yes, deeply. So that that's kind of the biggest problem. There just seem to be uh, sort of, and we we speak to the probate registry. We have a monthly meeting with the probate registry, sometimes more often than that. And I have a lot of sympathy with them because actually they were they pretty much you know they were they moved to a new system in twenty. 19, 2018, 2019, they moved over to a new system. There were a lot of teething problems with that. That led to a backlog. They were beginning to clear the backlog when the pandemic hit. And obviously that just sort of set them back again. They were beginning to sort of, they were beginning to clear that again. And then application numbers started to rise. Uh, those, the issues with the probate registry have been matched by uh, issues in the legal sector in adapting to the new way of working for certain, for a lot of, for for some firms they found the new kind of digital way of working very difficult for all sorts of reasons, and so it isn't just the probate registry and they actually work very hard to try and keep the system running, but objectively there is no doubt that there have been just a succession of issues which have led to problems. Uh, in processing in processing grants of probate, and there's just no denying that. And they work really hard to try and sort of resolve those issues and keep the system moving. But yes, that is that is much more in the short term. That is much more of a concern to us than the the kind of broader economy. But we have to hope. 
I think that if we are heading into a sort of a period of calm, they do the probate registry do do appear to be at the moment on top of things and starting to to clear backlogs again. But sort of they just do appear to have been a, a succession of problems. There's no there's no two ways about that. As I say, I have a lot of sympathy for them, but you can't deny the fact that it has been very problematic. I, I'm sensing a kind of cautious optimism here about that legacy market for for the future. Yeah, and I mean, I'm very bullish. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the short term, there is lots of potential in the short term, by which I mean the next one, two, three years, perhaps, for there to be kind of ongoing issues. The sort of housing market could could suddenly collapse. I don't think it will, but it could do, and that would be problematic. I don't think we're out of the woods with COVID yet. I, I think we will see, sort of continue to see some kind of rolling problems from that and caution and I know a lot of charities are you know still not able to do face-to-face events and you know a lot of charities have done really innovative stuff with uh with digital promotion of legacy giving and that has been entirely positive but for most charities some element of face-to-face solicitation legacy events will be central to their legacy fundraising programs who knows when those might restart I'm not convinced you know, I would know when that was. But if you look at sort of, say, the next three to 10 years, I think it's incredibly positive, actually. Uh, The cohort, you know, the number of people who are of an age where they will think about legacy giving is growing hugely. Uh, You know, the, the classic baby boomers, uh, that if you work in legacies for any length of time, you you sort of start to understand that they are core. That is a that is a constant. There are a lot of people of an age who will consider giving legacies, and they are very wealthy, and they are open to it as a form of giving. And so that's very positive. Uh, Long term, I think you've got to bet for the housing market to keep going up. Uh, but the other central thing is that charities are getting better and better and better at effective legacy promotion and that's not just the big charities i think you see small local charities doing incredibly effective sort of innovative stuff that would have been unheard of five years ago Hmm. so i think you know i think the future is incredibly bright for legacies actually if you sort of look at yes five to ten years out but that's the key thing, isn't it? Because five to ten years is quite a long time horizon for a lot of us when you, you have budgets to meet this year and, and life looks very difficult. Um, so, yeah, so so optimism for the future. But yeah, as you say, it's, it's just going to take us a while to get there because that's the nature of legacy. So hang in there and it probably will get better. That seems like a really good note to, to finish on. I mean, it's terrible advice, isn't it? Just hang on, hang on and it'll all be fine. Um, <laughs> you know. Yes, yeah. Frustrating advice to get, but possibly true in this case, unfortunately. I'm afraid Um, so. But no, thank you so much for joining us, Matthew. No, you're welcome. So each week we are bringing you our Good News Bulletin, a positive or a quirky news story that we have spotted in the charity sector. I like this one this week. This is a good one. Yeah, absolutely. So this story starts with a man named Dean Cuthbert, who went into the Age UK charity shop in York and purchased himself a book, as you do. So the book in question was a copy of John O'Farrell's The Best a Man Can Get. Now, Emily, I believe you've read this one. Uh, What is it about? 
All my sins. Yes, I have actually read this book, although it was probably about 15 years ago that I read it. And I can honestly say it has not crossed my mind since until reading this story. Um, But from what I can remember and from some light research to refresh my memory. So it tells the story of Michael Adams, who is an advertising jingle writer who spends his days living in a central London flat with three other 20-something men, playing Tomb Raider and taking plenty of naps and essentially just living his best life. I was going to say, that is the dream, right? Yes. And then, so every so often when he feels like it, he goes to the other side of the city to his unsuspecting wife, who believes that his demanding work schedule keeps him working through the night or travelling out of town, and to his two young children. Ooh. And uh, yeah, and this story is essentially about Michael's double life, renting this secret room so he can, and this is a direct quote from the book, hide half the week to get away from all that boring, exhausting baby stuff. Okay, so moustache twirling villain really if we're like (laughs) absolutely i can remember michael is definitely i mean i definitely saw him as as an anti-hero however i do remember it being a phenomenally funny book certainly at the time i read it um just uh, yes but do i approve of michael's life choices no i do not fair Uh, So the reason we're explaining this plot is not that we're going to turn this into a literary podcast, although I am just pitching this. I'm totally down for the third sector random charity bookshop find book club. We should totally do that. Yes. Okay. Okay. This is something I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to pitch at some point. But yes, that isn't happening for now. So why are we explaining the plot of this novel from 15 years ago? We are talking about the best a man can get because inside the front cover of this particular 50p charity shop copy was a note from a woman named Sarah to someone who we assume is her husband or her partner Chris. Now Sarah wrote, Chris, is this what you thought you could do with me? Lead a double life with your so-called recreational relationships, leaving me completely unaware, bringing up our children and thinking you were just a workaholic and that's why you were away from home so much. She then finishes up the note by saying that he has been a uh, a word beginning with B that questions his parentage to her and she signs off, Sarah. This note is so close to the actual content of the story that when he bought the book, Dean Cuthbert actually thought he had found an elaborate publicity stunt for the novel itself. But the author subsequently took to Twitter to confirm this was in fact not the case. So John O'Farrell, who wrote the book, tweeted, you know, the only mystery is that no one has any idea of what happened to Chris and Sarah. Oh, I mean, this is this is stone cold. Like she has really thought this through, right? She is just and of course you've got to wonder if she if he actually read it right like she's put this note in and you can imagine like him opening it to read it and it's like not only have i got you a book but also i know i know i know or or she she bought it for him he just didn't read it at all or put it in the charity shop you see it's so funny because my my theory is that he bought it for her and then she discovered it and like it was some kind of sick like joke um and yes and she was like that's the unkindest present anyone has ever given to me and then gave it to the charity shop wow um, yeah it's uh, i mean who knows which way the story unfolded all i can say is that sarah i hope that you have moved on to much better and brighter things since you wrote um this little note 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, well done on your your stone cold sort of revenge embarrassment game. Um, and yeah, whoever you are, whatever you know, I can say this without knowing anything about this woman. You deserve better than Chris. And let's hope that Chris is subsequently making better life choices. Yes. We'll be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guest, Matthew Lagden, and to our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week.